Hi, and welcome to this episode five of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matthew Payne. So, Matt, you probably remember that in episode two, we were speaking to the incredible Tim Harrison. Mm -hmm. And Tim... As those who listen to that episode will know, at the end, we mentioned that Tim was going to be undergoing some surgery. And yeah. we've received an update from Tim. And thankfully, we've heard some fantastic news that the surgery went well, and he is making a good recovery. And on behalf of you and me, and I imagine everybody else that knows him and has listened to the podcast or knows him elsewhere, we just want to wish him all the very best and hope for a continued recovery. Exactly. We can't wait to have him back on, can we, Harry? Absolutely. He was such a wonderful guest. Yeah. So, Harry. Yes. Moving on to different things. It's still going well, this, isn't it? What, this podcast? Yeah, fifth episode now. We've made it to the fifth episode. We have. I, I'm surprised we made it this far. I'm surprised they haven't shut us down. <laughs> so thank you to, as all, we keep saying this, but genuinely thank you to everyone that's listening. We've got some new listeners in Bulgaria, Bermuda, Oman, Thailand, Harry. Wow, everywhere. Still going in Mexico, United Arab Emirates. We've got a, a fan in United Arab Emirates or two fans that are regular listeners. So thank you to them. New Zealand, Harry. Wow, we are, we are conquering the world. Exactly. So um, that's pretty amazing. Any... Are we still being followed by Charlotte three six nine two five nine? You know what, Harry? We're not. What seems <laughs> to happen, Harry? I, I don't. I, I don't know about you. I think they may have been bots, Harry, because they were all really forward. First of all, which you know, fair enough. But we're new to this podcast world. We don't know what podcast listeners are like. Yeah. I. It looked as if they were all very forward. Is that um, a good thing or a bad thing that bots don't actually want anything to do with this? Is that an indication of how good we are or how bad we are? I, I think it's an indication of how terrible we are at this, that we cannot even get <laughs> fake bots to hang around. <laughs> Russian us. bots <laughs> listened to our podcast yeah. and went, yeah. Niet, that is not yeah. for me. No way. Yeah. No, no way. <laughs> we no have way. other things, more important things to listen to. We're going to go harass another podcast yeah. right now. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, but if anyone wants to follow us on social media, as always, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Please join the Facebook page. That's doing really well at the moment. Get in touch with Harry and I. Let us know any suggestions you've got for guests. We may listen. To be quite frank, this is Harry and I talking to people that we love. So, uh, exactly. We'll probably... So, any more suggestions? That would be brilliant. Talking of guests, Matt. Yes, Harry. Did you like that little segue into this? That was you that was neat, honestly, wasn't it? Mate. Wait, this is episode five. This is smooth you are now. Getting so good at this right now. That link was <laughs> so smooth. I know. I kind of undid it by mentioning it, but you know. Um, so who? <laughs> so Matt, <laughs> who have we got as a guest on this week's episode? Like well, I don't already know. <laughs> well, Harry, we have got, and I'm so excited for everyone to hear this podcast because we've got the absolutely fabulous Laurie Marino. Now, for those people who don't know Laurie, she is a neuroscientist. She's an expert in animal behavior intelligence and particularly an expert in animal intelligence when it comes to cetaceans, so dolphins, whales, porpoises. She has been pivotal at the forefront of the marine mammal captivity movement. She appeared in the 2013 very small, hardly anyone watched Blackfish. Um, as you know, Harry, no one, no one knows what that is. Blackfish, Blackfish. Blackfish. I don't even know what that is. Was yeah. that a... 
didn't make a, it didn't even make a ripple. Um, she also appeared in Unlocking the Cage, Long Gone Wild, which is kind of the follow-up to Blackfish, for anyone who's interested in that. But more recently, and we talk about this with her towards the end of the podcast, she's the founder and president of the Whale Sanctuary Project. She's has been an inspiration to me. I'm very privileged to say that she's a friend. I work with her closely at the Whale Sanctuary Project. And I'm so excited for her to be on this podcast and for you all to have the opportunity to hear some of the amazing work she's done, the journey she's been on. And I can't, I just can't wait for this to go out. Well, I guess we'd better get started then, hadn't we? Yep, let's get on with it. was it that got you interested in this in the first place? Was it intelligence? Was it cetaceans themselves? Was there an inkling of welfare there? What was it that drew you to your area of research and work initially? Well, actually, you'd be surprised to find that it really wasn't uh, dolphins and whales. It was intelligence and this idea that, you know, we could try to probe the intelligence, the awareness, what it's like to be a member of a different species. And that's been a question that's driven all my work for my whole life, uh, even when I was a, a child. So it was clear to me that I wanted to study a group of animals, group of species who were uh, very intelligent and complex, but perhaps very different from us. And it wasn't until I went into graduate school that I became interested in working with dolphins and whales. Before that, it was other other animals. But uh, the reason that I kind of fell in love with dolphins and whales is I uh, opened a book one time and I looked inside and there was a, a photo of a dolphin brain. And I looked at that brain and I thought, wow, that's exactly what I've been looking for. <laughs> So when you were looking at intelligence and you, you were looking at it with in comparison to humans, or were you thinking of trying, were you trying to find that link in comparison to humans in order to improve animals or their welfare, their rights almost? I'm just thinking of some documentaries which have been out that, and the name of it escapes me, but the idea of trying to give individual animals, particularly chimps, for example, primates, more right uh, because... Unlocking the cage. Unlocking the thank cage. you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Harry. You saved me. Um, <laughs> you know, so whereas one of the arguments is intelligence, was that of an interest of you or was it, was it simply just interest in intelligence in itself? Well, it's both. But, you know, it, it really was and is intelligence in other species, members of other species. Mm. And I, what you're mentioning is the Non-Human Rights Project that yeah. I uh, worked closely with for a couple of years. But it's, it's about what experience is like as a chimpanzee or a dolphin or a raccoon, you know, or an ant or a fish or anyone who's not us. And how can you study that? And I'm very interested in how the brain gives rise to experience and awareness and intelligence, and that's the route I took. 
but it really is about the deeper issue of who are we sharing this planet with from their point of view. That's really interesting. That's an area that I find absolutely fascinating, Laurie, because when we talk about animal intelligence and we use it as an argument for welfare or even just for its own sake, we have such an anthropocentric view of animal intelligence. I remember seeing a, um, an experiment a couple of years ago, and it just baffled me that there was a gorilla that was in a zoo, and the zookeeper that this gorilla had a connection with, they staged the person having their mobile phone stolen to see mm. how the gorilla would act, as if the gorilla could care less that somebody was on their mobile. And it's this idea that because we understand it, because it's relevant to us, we're measuring intelligence in that way. And so how do you, from your studies, from the way that you approach your research, how do you look at ways to study animal intelligence in a way that isn't anthropocentric? Well, that's a really good question. And, and it's a tough one because in a sense, if we are doing studies, right, they're coming, we are humans, and they are going to come from a human mentality. And, you know, we, we design studies uh, for other animals that, you know, probe capacities and, and abilities that we recognize in ourselves. And that is not just because we are self-centered, but also because we can't do anything else, really. We don't at least put much effort into doing anything else. Uh, we only know what we know, and we try to probe those questions in other animals. But you have to realize that other animals have capacities and abilities and characteristics that we don't have a clue about. And we never will because we're not those other species. It's sort of like the what is it like to be a bat philosophy mm. question. We'll never, ever know because we can't ever be a bat. But we can at least ask questions about what a bat's experience is like. I remember reading a book some time ago by Stephen Budansky. I think it was Stephen Budansky. Hmm. It was If Lions Could Talk. Yeah. And it was If Lions Could Talk, we wouldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. Because our frame of reference is so different from theirs that even if we shared a common language, we just wouldn't get the gist of how they saw the world. Well, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think that there are two things going on here. One, and you know, this is how I think about dolphins and whales, because they're really a good example of a really complex set of species who are both the same or similar and different all at the same time. So it's not like the other animals are just like us. They're not. They're other species. And so we can't expect them to be just like us, like that example of the zookeeper. Hmm. They're different because they're different species, but they're not completely alien either because we share so much of our evolutionary history, our physiology, and our psychology with other animals, uh, especially mammals. So there is this, we have to keep in mind the fact that other animals are both similar and different at the same time. I like to think of them as well as humans as sort of different versions of the same thing. You know, there is this thread that runs through all life on earth that we all 
share certain things in our genes and our nervous systems, etc. And that each species is a different version of that, but it's not a completely different being. Hmm. So, you know, when we look at elephants and dolphins and other mammals uh, who look like they're grieving because they've suffered a death or a loss of a child, I think there is every reason to accept that we understand what that's like because we're mammals as well. It's really, really interesting. So before we get on to your, your work with cetaceans, Laurie, I just wanted to see what your opinion was on why do you think, and I'm making an assumption here, but just through my experience of reading, watching and talking to people, I, I found that people can get very sensitive about the idea of animal intelligence and yeah. there's a more pushback from it. Why do you think that is in your experience doing the work you've done? Why do you think that might be? And did you find, particularly when you started going down this road, did you find a lot of pushback and a lot of uh, resistance to the work you were doing? Wow, that's a loaded question. Sorry. Um, (laughs) It's great. It's great. Okay, so let me see if I can unpack this. So people can really like animals, but they don't really want to be compared to them. And they don't want to think that other animals might have the same emotional lives or sensibilities. And that's because if we do, then it makes it hard for us to exploit them. And, you know, we see this obviously in the realm of farmed animals, where there's been a concerted effort to dismiss all of the evidence that they are intelligent, uh, emotional beings, cows, chickens, pigs, Uh, Because if you recognize who they are, then it makes it harder for you to eat them. So there's that psychological defense mechanism that's in play all of the time. It's also the case for rats and mice and monkeys and animals used in laboratories. And it's also the case for animals who are confined in zoos and aquariums, you know. I mean, if we go and bring your child to a zoo and you see a gorilla there or an elephant, you have to believe that that individual is fine with their lot in life otherwise it doesn't feel good so that's one aspect of it it's just the convenience the psychological convenience another aspect of it is that in academia and university and and i was at emory university for almost 20 years It really depends upon how you approach a question. So if you approach a question scientifically, the way we approach the question of self-awareness in dolphins, then it just becomes part of the scientific literature. Uh, It's not so much that you're probing something that's strange or subjective or phenomenological, but if you're doing it according to scientific method, then it becomes accepted, just like it was accepted that chimpanzees recognize themselves in mirrors. Uh, In 1970, when Gordon Gallup showed that, he actually took a question that you could answer in a lot of different ways, and it's pretty untethered, and put it right into the scientific literature on the ground. And then there is a third reason, and... I'll just say that this gets into a very, very deep and dark place, which has to do with the fact that we don't want to be animals because animals are mortal. 
and if we if we relate to them deeply enough, then we have to accept our mortality. And uh, that's a very hard thing for us to do. And that I've done some work with Michael Mountain on uh, Ernest Becker's work on denial of death. And it's, it's very clear that, you know, if you want to get somebody to distance themselves psychologically from other animals, remind them of their own mortality, and you'll see a clear effect. So we have a very deep and fraught and conflicted relationship with all the other animals that we, we share the planet with. That third thing that you were talking about there is so, so interesting. And I think that really cuts through to a root cause yeah. of why we have so many issues in relation to ourselves and other species. It is the base. It's sort of the foundational psychology of why all these other uh, abuses and exploitation and conflicting relationships happen. It is at the core, as you said. Going back to the second point that you mentioned there, because obviously the self-awareness thing is something that some people will have heard about, but you pioneered the self-awareness recognition in dolphins. For people that are listening, why is that so important, this, this idea of self-awareness and the small group of species that these studies have been done on that shows that there is self-awareness? There's the, the cetaceans, some of the great apes and elephants. What is the process for self-awareness and why is that such an important recognition in understanding these other species? Well, you know, it's, fair, it's really interesting because self-awareness is one of those sort of subjective experiences that uh, I mentioned earlier that a lot of people are interested in. What is it like to be an elephant or a chimpanzee? And there are very few ways to objectively probe that question, but there is one way. Uh, there are other ways, but one of the more successful ways has been through mirror self-recognition. And that was actually pioneered by Gordon Gallup, my former PhD advisor, and he was the first person to show that another species, in his case, chimpanzees, was capable of recognizing themselves in mirrors. So why is that important? Well, it's important because, again, it's a way that we can observe whether a member of another species has a similar experience to us. Self-awareness has to do with, you know, do you know you? Uh, you look in the mirror and you see that it's you. And it's not the fact that you know that a mirror exists or is reflective. It's the fact that you know you exist. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very interesting capacity. And so when, you know, when I was a graduate student, I was looking around for another species who might be a good candidate for mirror self-recognition. And Diana Reese and I started on the road of studying this in dolphins. And eventually in 2001, we published a paper uh, that showed that definitively bottlenose dolphins recognize themselves in mirrors. And so this is really important. It doesn't mean that other animals don't have self-awareness, but what it does mean is those animals who do recognize themselves in mirrors have some something in common with us. Something about this experience is the same. And we know now that dolphins and great apes and elephants and magpies 
are all capable of doing this. And so, you know, it's, it's a way for us to find a commonality with other animals. And it's really interesting because, you know, when we found that the two bottlenose dolphins at the New York Aquarium in Coney Island were able to recognize themselves in mirrors, we had to face the fact that these were two very self-aware beings who were living in a concrete tank. So this, <laughs> I've had this conversation with the members of my family. So the dog, <laughs> you probably know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, so, the, <laughs> so the dog that, that I have and that we've had before, they will insist that because when you stand in front of a mirror, if, so for example, I'm standing in front of a mirror and the dog yeah. is in front of me and the dog yeah. is looking at me through the mirror. It knows that I'm not the one in the mirror. It knows yeah. that I'm behind it, but it recognizes that it doesn't have to turn its head, that the wow. me in the mirror is the same as the me behind it. That's not the same as being self-aware. That's habituation to kind of understanding a reflection of the same thing. And again, for, <laughs> for the benefit of my family, why is that differentiation important? Well, you know, that is what you mentioned is something that has puzzled people for a while now is what exactly is it when you look in the mirror that you recognize yourself, but you're mentioning a case with your dog. And by the way, you know, we see this with monkeys and cats and all kinds of other animals, mm -hmm. pigs, for instance, individuals who, when you place them in front of a mirror, they don't show the typical self-recognition uh, mark test signs, but they know something. They mm. know something about the reflection in the mirror as it relates to their body. And so it might relate to, for instance, somebody coming up behind them. So, you know, if you silently drop a banana down behind a rhesus monkey, and he's looking in the mirror, he'll turn around and grab that banana. If you put pigs in front of a mirror and then you hide food, they use the mirror to get to the hidden food. Hmm. So they have to know something about their body in space and what's reflected in the mirror in order to do that. What that is and why that is not reflected in quote, passing the mirror test is, is a mystery. But what it shows is that these things are, they're not cut and dry, they're not black and white. And there is a lot of complexity there that, you know, a scientist, I mean, we just, we, we don't know. I mean, to this day, we really don't understand what that is, what you mm. just described in your dog. I've seen it in my cats as well. <laughs> a lot of animals are able to do that. So how do you do that without knowing that that's you in the mirror? There's something there we're not grasping. It's really interesting. So, so Laurie, you can be, you've obviously done this incredible pioneering work about cetacean intelligence, but your biggest achievement is settling a Harry Ekman family dispute now. <laughs> yes. Uh, you should and be very doesn't... proud of that. I, you know, Harry, I hope that this makes family life a lot better for you. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest here, Laurie. It wasn't terrible to begin with. It wasn't like we, we, would, we would argue over the dinner table about this. But, but it certainly it certainly gave us another level of conversation to debate about. So well, I certainly know, appreciate that. <laughs> and, you know, I will say, I mean, uh, I don't think there are any animals who are not self-aware 
in some way. I think self-awareness and experience is what brains, nervous systems do. So if you've got a brain, there's a reason for it. And I've said before that this includes all beings who have brains, including insects, who, by the way, are no slouches when it comes to intelligence. So Laurie, just for the benefit of the listeners, how on earth do you find out that a dolphin can recognize itself in a mirror when you're running an experiment in a tank uh, with two captive dolphins? How, how did that work and what signs did the dolphins give you in order signals in order for you to establish that they knew it was themselves they were seeing in that reflection? Okay, so very simply, you wake up in the morning, you go to the mirror to brush your hair or brush your teeth or whatever, mm. you look in the mirror and you have a big pimple on your forehead. What do you do? You spend a little bit more time in front of that mirror and you touch it. You touch the pimple, the mark. And what that simple behavior shows is that you know that what you're seeing in the mirror is you and you have a big pimple on your forehead. And I call that the zit response. So everybody knows what that is. Everybody's experienced that. And so let's take that and put it into an experimental context for another animal. You take a chimpanzee or a dolphin. Let's go with the dolphins. And you expose them to a mirror and you see how they react. And after they get used to being in front of a mirror, they're swimming around and they check themselves out. They do things called contingency checking behaviors. They start to do repetitive behaviors in front of the mirror because they're trying to figure out, oh, wait, that, that might be me. Their hypothesis is that's me. And they're going to work it out by doing repetitive behaviors in front of the mirror and seeing if the reflection actually does do the same thing. Once you get to that point, then you can start the marking process. And we're talking about over weeks or months, you know, marking them in different parts of their body that they cannot see without the mirror. Then when they go to the mirror, they look and they see they have a mark. It might be uh, underneath one of their pec fins or on their side of their head or something. And if they position themselves in front of the mirror so that they can see the mark, that is equivalent to a mark-directed behavior. And of course, what you have to do is all of the controls. Mark them, but no mirror. Don't mark them, but have a mirror. All of the different controls that allow you to say with confidence that, yeah, when they're marked, they go straight to the mirror and they're checking it out. And that's a mark-directed behavior. So that's how we're able to determine if dolphins and other animals who don't have hands to touch the mark are actually recognizing themselves in mirrors. You know, with chimpanzees, it's easy, right? Because when they're sleeping, you put a mark that they can't feel on their forehead. They wake up and they look in the mirror and they touch the mark. And that's mm -hmm. what you and I do because we're primates. But, you know, in the case of dolphins, they can't do that because they don't have hands. So what they do do is something that I liken to the wet paint effect. You ever walking down a hall in a building and you've got a new suit on and then all of a sudden you see a wet paint sign. Well, the first thing you do is go in the bathroom and look in the mirror and turn around to make sure you didn't get any paint on your new suit. And that's exactly what the dolphins do. 
So, Laurie, I, I've never told you this. So I first knew about you watching a YouTube video, which is still up, actually. I've just literally checked whether it's still up, and it is. In a panel discussion you did at Emory University with David Kirby, who wrote yeah. a fantastic Death at Sea World, yeah. and Naomi Rose, um, yes. who is the feature of that book, essentially, in her journey. And forgive me if this is not the correct uh, point in which you said this, but I'm pretty sure it is. I remember watching it and you discussing the the conflict you had of working with uh, these two dolphins and the fact that people were writing to you almost, you know, if we can call if we can call them the animal rights community, just for this, yeah. you know, um, writing to you and that sort of conflict you had about finding out how intelligent these animals were and that whole journey for you from that and then what was the final trigger for you to then decide that you wanted to go down a different journey? Yeah, at that time, the dolphin work was very new. And then once we published the paper showing that dolphins recognize themselves in mirrors, of course, it got a lot of attention. But it also, you know, not only from the scientific community, but from the animal welfare, animal advocacy, animal rights community. And I got a lot of mail uh, from folks saying things like, well, now that you've found this, what are you going to do about it? Or how can knowing that these animals are self-aware, are you going to just continue as is, or are you going to become an advocate for them? And at the time, I knew that they had a point, but I wasn't ready to hear that. And it took a little while, but eventually... I began to realize that they were right, that there's more to this than just a scientific experiment, a finding that adds to our knowledge. It is about the experience of my research subjects. And I began to think about those two dolphins living in Coney Island, going around and around in a circle, in a concrete tank, and what it would be like. And that really, I tell you, that it struck me that you know what, I, I can't ignore that anymore. And I, you know, this wasn't a decision I made. It was just sort of a, an emotional shift. I allowed myself to feel something that I had felt all along, but just put aside. And, you know, then I started to dig in to learn about where these dolphins come from and the Taiji drives and what their lives are really like in, in concrete tanks and marine parks. And, you know, at that point I said, well, you know, that's it. I really can't just continue to promote this kind of research. So I stopped doing research with captive dolphins and whales. And I decided that I had to be an advocate for these animals. And that's how I became a scientist advocate for dolphins and whales and other animals. Cause I realized that, you know, hey, I've had a really good time learning a lot about dolphins and whales and other animals, and I've learned a lot. You know, I've had a great career, but that's not enough. I have to give back. And my way of giving back was to become an advocate for them. That's such a profound transition to make that way, to be able to see that and recognize it for what it is. I'm curious, Obviously, you'd spent a long time in academia and as a researcher and as a scientist. And so when you made this transition 
uh, however long it took, into the awareness that you had of the welfare of these species and wanted to become more of an advocate and an activist on their behalf. How was that viewed by your peers? Did they look at you and go, oh, she's become one of them? Or were they, were they understanding where it was coming from? How did that affect your relationship with your peers? Well, you know, obviously some of my peers were threatened by the fact that I had incorporated advocacy into my work because, you know, they feel that science is one thing and advocacy is another and the two can't live together. And that's absolutely not the case, but that is what some people just cannot do both. But I have to say that at Emory, for instance, I was able to maintain a really productive relationship with my faculty colleagues. And in fact, after that, I was invited to become a member of the Center for Ethics at Emory because of my work in advocacy. I mean, I'm not an, an ethicist. I'm not a professional philosopher or an ethicist, but uh, I was privileged to be a member of that Center for Ethics for a number of years. And I think the reason is that my approach has always been and continues to be a very scholarly approach. I don't stand on the sidewalk dressed like a dolphin. I don't stand, you know, I don't stand outside research institutes and throw tomatoes at people. I don't threaten people. I don't break into labs. None of that. Um, what this is all about is something that I've come to know as scholar advocacy, meaning maintaining my scholarly approach and continuing to publish as a scientist, which I continued to do, but using what I learned to advocate for a better life for animals, using what I learned to do science in a way that doesn't involve harm. Uh, so I think my approach which is one that I really think is the most powerful approach is what kept me having good relationships with my faculty colleagues. I think that, that approach is a powerful message, Laurie, because I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and this is based purely on my own experience. And, and I think you and I have actually talked about this, Laurie, before is mm -hmm. people find it very difficult to control their emotions about these subjects that they're so passionate about. And like you say, end up, breaking into labs and maybe even going down the Rico Barry, which I've got, you know, I'm not questioning, but the whole trying to free dolphins out of aquariums yeah. and you know, the more sort of hands-on activist kind of role. Was that difficult for you or did you, did it just lend naturally to your previous career as an academic? Was it something you'd learnt or did you find yourself having to try and control that urge to try and go out and almost as part of your, part of a new identity, show everyone that you're an activist, and how did that how did that work for you? Yeah, I mean, my identity was always the same, but what I added was the advocacy, and I I never really felt tempted to take the route of some other activist. I never, you know, you'll never find me on the sidewalk handing out flyers. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not my way of doing things. And as a scientist, I felt that I was in a good position to use science and scholarship and knowledge as a way to advocate for the animals. So the best use of my time, my experience is as a scientist. 
And so that's something I, I never was tempted to steal an animal from <laughs> a zoo or an aquarium. Um, that's one way to go. It's not my way and it's not one I recommend. And I also, I think there's something really important here because, you know, having been a teacher for many years, I really began to realize that there were a lot of students in the neurosciences and psychology, et cetera, and biology who felt the same way I did about animals, but were being told that they couldn't be a scientist and an advocate at the same time. And that uh, that's really an unfair choice to force somebody to make. Uh, and I saw a lot of bright, talented students at Emory get out of the sciences because they were being told if they had to toe the line, they had to do things in a certain way, and they couldn't show their concern for other animals. They couldn't show their concern for what happens in vivisection and terminal research. And, and that's when I started the Camella Center for Animal Advocacy, which is a way to promote scholar advocacy for animals and to help students realize that, you know, you can be a scientist and an advocate at the same time. And, you know, I always say, don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise, because that's completely unfair uh, choice that they're forcing upon you. I think that that's one of the most powerful areas of our work and the most important areas of our work in animal welfare and animal activism is over the last couple of decades, this, this recognition that both of those things need to coexist for us to be able to do our work properly, that we need the emotion behind it because that's what drives us, but the science has to be there to prove exactly. our point and make those arguments for us we would not be able to do the work that we've done over the last few years without those two things being equally present. And they empower each other. And so being a scientist and an advocate is the most powerful position you can be in. I, I mean, you know, and that's true, not just in the animal world, but for human rights mm -hmm. and in other areas is scientists know the most about their, their area. And so they make very powerful advocates at least i think so but i was just going to say i think again we we seem to be saying all the time harry and this that that's very powerful but not to repeat myself but i think that's really powerful what you said which essentially knowledge is power and it's really yeah. powerful and an inspiring message because something that i'm personally really passionate about is getting more diverse people particularly um trying to get more for example in the uk we have a real issue with women not going into STEM work, for example, uh, mm -hmm. scientific technology, I believe engineering and mathematics. Um, I might be wrong on what STEM stands for, but I think that's a really powerful message that would help a more diverse cohort enter this field because the more diverse the more we are, the more we can bring to the table, the more we can relate with people and the more of a difference we can make and change behavior. Yes, absolutely. I, I think so. I, I think so. Although, you know, STEM is very popular here in the United States. Okay. And I think it really, this is an issue that really crosses all kinds of lines, right? It's not just females who are compassionate. There are many males who I've heard from who are really concerned about, you know, how they should relate to other animals. I don't find that it's a gender thing or a yeah, anything. It's a human thing. Now, taking your scientific background, how did you 
or how have you used that in the activism in practical terms? How has that the work that you've done and continued to do academically informed and progressed the activism work that you're doing, transitioning into the newer roles that you now have? Right. Well, you know, part of it is taking the scientific method and employing it, employing it for analysis of how animals do in captivity. So there's a lot of uh, literature out there on welfare and other animals, farmed animals, lab animals, and animals kept in zoos and so forth. And there's a lot of literature there on dolphins and whales and what they experience and what their well-being is like in concrete tanks. So my scientific experience allows me to probe that literature and to put it in a scientific context and to make sense of it and to make predictions. And that's what I've been doing. We recently published a paper in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior on chronic stress in killer whales, orcas, in captivity, and how that is related to what we know about their experience, the fact that they don't live very long, that they die, a lot of infections that are due to an impaired immune system, that they show behavioral signs that they are stressed, like stereotypies, hyperaggression, Uh, So we can explain all of the problems that are well-documented in dolphins and whales in concrete tanks through a chronic stress model that is very similar to what we see in other animals. So the ability to put all of that together and to probe the evidence, to know what is good evidence, what is not good evidence, is very helpful. So, Laurie, you you were really central to the movement is probably the best way to refer to it after the absolutely tragic death of Dawn Bradshaw um, in 2010. Yeah. And I know there'd been a movement beforehand, but I think we probably all agree that following that tragic event, things really started steamrolling to do with cetaceans, but primarily killer whales. And yes. then, as I mentioned earlier, David Kirby's fantastic book came out shortly afterwards. And then shortly after that, we had Blackfish. And, yeah. I, and I sometimes worry that, you know, that Blackfish was seven years ago now. And what do you see as the, the next stage of that? Because I think the argument, I, I don't even feel like we need to really make the argument on this podcast too much. Um, you mentioned it just then as to why cetaceans are not suitable for captivity. There is so much out there and Blackfish has done so much. But what do you think is the next stage in terms of this movement? And I know you're doing lots of work that I'm involved with as well with you in terms of yes. what do you see as the next stage in the what I'm going to call the blackfish movement, because the argument's been out there for a while now. But what what is that next stage? Well, you know, as you mentioned, the argument's been out there for a while. Blackfish showed this, and, and frankly, a lot of scientific evidence shows this as well, that dolphins and whales do very poorly in concrete tanks. So it's not a debate anymore. I know that a lot of people want to keep it as a debate, But it's not really anymore. There's just overwhelming evidence. We'll continue to get more evidence for different species. But the fact is, is that it's really difficult to argue that these animals are healthy uh, psychologically or, or physically living in marine parks and concrete tanks. So the question is, what do you do about that? Well, you can't just become an activist and say, 
stop doing that. Stop keeping them in the concrete tanks because there really is no place for them to go as an alternative. At least up until now, there hasn't been. Uh, we can't just take these animals and dump them back in the ocean because they don't know how to survive in the ocean. Most of them have been born into captivity. So, you know, we could complain all we want about different facilities keeping these animals in concrete tanks, but without a concrete solution, there's nothing anybody can really do about it. So that led to the sanctuary idea. And, you know, as you know, there are sanctuaries for elephants and tigers and primates, all kinds of animals. And these are places where these animals can retire from show business, where they can be removed from the cages and the displays and the performances and given a chance to actually thrive in a natural environment. And that's how we came up with the idea of sanctuary for captive dolphins and whales. And so in 2016, I founded the Whale Sanctuary Project. And our mission is to create a seaside sanctuary for beluga whales and orcas. And that to me is the next step, is to move all of these animals. And it's going to take a while. We can't move 3,000 dolphins and whales all at once. But we can show that this works. It's a proof of concept that just as with elephants and chimpanzees and others, uh, dolphins and whales can have a much better life, a much healthier life, a more autonomous life in a situation where they have more of a natural setting. And that's what I think is the next step. And that is, to me, that and stopping the breeding is the only way to move past this, you know, this putting these animals on display. And Laurie, I'm going to I'm going to get on my high horse, as they say now about this, because something that I've been I don't know if you've watched The Tiger King on Netflix. I haven't. I haven't. No, you're not. You're not missing much. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but something something that I found in that documentary that really frustrated me, and maybe this is just me, is that it really did not do that much to stress the difference between a sanctuary and a roadside zoo. Now, this is a really basic question, Laurie, but for people that are listening, what is the difference between a sanctuary and a roadside park or a zoo or an aquarium? That's a great question. And it's a really important question, Matt. So, you know, you might be a tourist in a country or anywhere and see somebody put up a sign that says tiger sanctuary or elephant sanctuary or bear sanctuary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or dolphin sanctuary. But you should look beyond that because anybody can put up a sign and call themselves a sanctuary. But there are certain things, certain features to look for to be able to determine whether this is an authentic sanctuary or just a zoo trying to fool you into thinking it's a sanctuary. First of all, if they breed the animals, they're not a sanctuary. No authentic sanctuary engages in breeding. So if the animals are breeding, it's a zoo. If they allow you to get up close to the animals, and especially if they allow you to handle the animals like tiger cubs, 
that's not a sanctuary. Again, that's a petting zoo. And if those two things happen, or even one of them happens, it's not a real sanctuary. But on a higher level, a real sanctuary is a place where the priority is given to the animals, not the people, not the visitors. There's no ticket sales. There's no accommodating what visitors want and imposing on the animals. So a sanctuary is all about the animals, not about us. It's about the animals. And so uh, those are just two ways that you can tell. But, you know, there's obviously many other ways that you can tell. We're working on an accreditation, a set of accrediting guidelines so that people can look at that and determine whether a dolphin and whale sanctuary is accredited or not and is an authentic sanctuary. Because right now, most places that say they're sanctuaries are not. I think, obviously, with the anti-captivity movement or the blackfish movement, there's been a lot of stress on the fact that we don't believe that cetaceans are suitable for captivity. And I think it's really important that people understand that when we're looking at creating a sanctuary, it's not the same. You know, we're not replicating what is going to be happening with these. And it's also really important because we know it's up to tourists and families to understand this, that the main motivations for a lot of families and parents, we know this through research, for visiting zoos, aquariums, attractions like this, is to have a unique experience and to provide an experience for their children. And if somebody's allowing you to hold a tiger cub, if somebody's allowing you to get up really close to an animal, they are not a sanctuary. And you need to think about providing, as a responsible almost tourist or visitor, providing an alternative, unique experience for your family if that's what you're after it's a really big point that needs to be made and i'm really glad you said it so clearly laurie so laurie i'm going to ask you a very provocative question um and i don't think i've heard people talk about this and it's only just come to me and this is not my belief but what is the argument against euthanizing killer whales that are in sea world and marine land and all rather than traveling them what would be the argument against saying well if they've been raised in captivity um, rather than putting them out into, say, a sanctuary or some other facility, wouldn't the kindest thing to be to euthanize them? Well, you know, the way I look at that is if you can advance that argument for humans, then maybe we'll look at it, but we would never. And I, I'm not being facetious here. I'm saying that orcas are self-aware, autonomous beings who have social lives, personalities, emotions, they have lives and they know they have lives. And that's the case for many other animals. So the idea that they would be better off dead is one that we should never consider, in my view. I mean, I do a lot of work in animal welfare, but I really adhere to the notion of animal rights, the right of an individual to to live their life, bodily integrity, bodily, uh, free from bodily harm. And while it would be the case that if we took all of the orcas or dolphins or beluga whales in captivity now and dumped them back in the ocean, most of them wouldn't make it. And that would be cruel. There is another way. And the way is sanctuary. Sanctuary is where they can have a better life and they will be cared for. So there really is no argument 
uh, to make that killing the animals would be better than sending them to sanctuary because we know that's not the case. We know that with all the other animals. And it's just frankly morally repugnant to me to think about killing these animals and to making the decision about whether they should live or not. I think that needs to be completely off the table, especially when we have an alternative that does work for other animals, that we have evidence for that. Just to reiterate before I, so I do not get thousands of (laughs) abuse, and that is obviously not my position as well, but I think it's really important to address these sort of questions or viewpoints when we're having these sort of discussions. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you asking it because it is a very complex issue. There are a lot of people that think that suffering is the way to look at whether or not a being should live or die. But many people, including myself, feel that every being has a right to have the opportunity to live a better life and that, you know, we don't really have the right to judge what life is worth living. You know, I think it's it's a very, very complex, controversial area in philosophy and ethics, but my feeling is they want to live just like us. And as long as an animal is alive, they have an opportunity to go to a better situation. When they're dead, they're dead. And that's that's how I see it. I'm glad you clarified your point there, Matt, because I was literally just about to troll you on social media. <laughs> Matt, I know you don't believe yeah. that. You so. know, Laurie, Ingrid Viss is going to come for me now, isn't she? Ingrid is going to come for me. No matter what I said, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on something that you said just a few minutes ago, Laurie. You were talking about the richness and diversity that is present in the lives of cetaceans, dolphins and killer whales. Yeah. And I wanted to, one of the things that I think is just so wonderful about them that I remember first hearing about it and it blew me away was that in different parts of the world, these families, these schools, these collections of whales, they have different cultures, regional cultures, regional dialects, regional and family-based almost stories and ways of behaving. And I was wondering if you could go into a little more detail about that. Sure. This is a very interesting thing. You know, for a long time in anthropology, sociology, and in academic circles, people thought that only humans had culture, that humans were unique in that way. Culture is simply, you know, the transmission of learned behaviors from one generation to the next. And obviously, we have a very complex culture, but in the end, it really is all about that definition. Now we know that many other animals have cultures, and we know that dolphins and whales in particular have very complex cultures. And by that, I mean that different groups have different ways of doing things, that those cultural traditions are passed on from mother to child, and that they involve everything from different dialects to different ways of feeding, to different ways of behaving, to different ways of reproducing or mating. And uh, we know all this because of the fantastic field research that has been done over the years by people like Hal Whitehead and others who have studied orcas, humpback whales, bottlenose dolphins, beluga whales, 
over the long haul and have shown that different groups are actually different cultures. So the importance of this cannot be overstated. And because if we are looking at a a group of beluga whales or a group of orcas who are maybe on the brink of extinction, you can't just look at that and say, oh yeah, there's beluga whales all over the place, who cares? No, we're looking at the extinction of an actual culture. And and that's, that's what's at stake in terms of conservation, that we will never know that culture again if that particular group of dolphin or whales goes extinct. So there is so much more to this than just looking at things from the species level. This, they're cultures. And you know we know that, for instance, in um, Monkey Maya, Australia, the bottlenose dolphins there have been studied for decades, and they have all kinds of cultures, including things like how the males court the females. They have a sponge club there where uh, females uh, will sometimes use sponges at the bottom of the, the ocean and put them on their rostrum so that they don't scratch up their rostrum. And they know exactly which female uh, started that cultural tradition and passed it on to her daughter. And now there are many individuals who are part of what is known as the sponge club. And you know what's interesting about that is not everybody's a sponger. There are sponge clubbers and then there are non-spongers. And the non-spongers tend to stay away from the spongers and vice versa. So you can see the animals themselves actually making differentiation on the basis of culture. I, th- I think that's going to start off a very interesting debate, Laurie, on are you a sponger or not? Hashtag, <laughs> are you I'm a sponger? sponger. Yeah. Well, according to these bottlenose dolphins, <laughs> it's really important. And if you are a sponger, you don't want your sponger daughter to be mating with a non-sponger. No, oh, God, no. Across the tracks. Oh, why would they? <laughs> As it were. Absolutely not. Yeah. Bring yeah. shame on the family. But, you know, quite seriously, there have been genetic studies done on these individuals showing genetic partitioning. Uh, so it's not just, you know, a cute thing that we see. This is actually evolution at work. Natural selection is, is coming from the animals themselves. Culture actually creating genetic differences fascinating yeah and i think it's when you take the cultural side of things and the incredible social bonds that the cetaceans have particularly killer whales with one another it's absolutely abhorrent that SeaWorld, for example will split and mix these animal these orcas from different parts of the world together purely for well for logistical reasons yeah yeah i mean culture in these concrete tanks is like prison culture yeah you know you could argue it's a culture but is it really a functional culture is it a dysfunctional culture is it cobbled together uh to the best of people's abilities yeah i would argue that in in prison it's a cobbled together prison culture it's the same thing in marine parks and i think if people want to learn more than more about that watch the movie blackfish i know it's for me, it was only yesterday, but it's been seven years since that film came out. And I, I want to make sure we don't rest on our laurels in terms of uh, assuming everyone's watched it. It's on Netflix. Watch it. It's incredible. So going back to you, Laurie, you've gone from being an academic teacher to now 
the head of this incredible organization that's been created and continues to be created with all these incredible advisors and me, um, part of it. I'm not going to put myself in those incredible And you are among them. Um, <laughs> Harry's seriously questioning your judgment. Uh, <laughs> um, so I know that's coming. But how's that how's that transition been for you? Because I can imagine for anyone going from that background to now, essentially, you're the CEO of this this organization that's people have you know the, the eyes are on from the, around the world, and you're going to have you know it's not going to be cheap setting it up and then maintaining it. How's that been for you as an individual coping with that change? Well, you know, it's been a learning curve. I, I have to say, you know, as an academic, there are a lot of things I didn't know about the business world, the world of managing, the world of engineering, the world of all kinds of things. And fortunately, we brought on an executive director, Charles Vinnick, who is not a stranger to any of those things. And you'll be talking with Charles. He's a manager. He's uh, he's someone who who knows how to do the things that most academics don't really know how to do um, in the real world. But I'm on a learning curve. I know so much more now than I did about running an organization, about relationships with a board, other board members, the ways to maintain the integrity of an organization, to do everything right. So yeah, I'm learning a lot. I still love academia and I still love teaching and would like to get back into that at some point. And as you know, you know, we're working on the education component for the Whale Sanctuary Project. And that's really important to me uh, in terms of how we roll out the educational component of what we're doing. So that's really the the other the other aspect of this is really about this being public education now and still being education but now reaching a much wider audience what's your hope for the next stages for the future in in the work that you do and and how optimistic are you in those hopes well i don't have you know i don't like to deal in hope i like to deal in actions and expectations because in this world right now i don't know what hope really is <laughs> um but i do know what it means to do something and to expect a uh, consequence and so what am what am i you know looking for well clearly in the realm of other animals uh, in terms of dolphins and whales you know i hope that the sanctuary becomes a model for uh, how to move dolphins and whales out of the entertainment business, out of the concrete tanks, into a better situation for them and to promote a more respectful relationship with these animals. I mean, I think that's really what it's about. It's, oh, it's great for the few whales who are going to go into the sanctuary, but what this is really about is changing our relationship to these animals to one that is respectful and not exploitive. So my hope is that the Whale Sanctuary Project plays a role in that. And I also hope, even though I don't like <laughs> that word, I work towards a time when 
science and animal advocacy are not so separate and that, you know, younger generations coming up can see that they can be scientists and advocates for other animals at the same time. And they start to populate mainstream academia so that there are students who are neuroscientists, for instance, who don't have to necessarily apply their profession through vivisection. So I'd like to see those two areas come together, become part of the cultural furniture more. And I'd like to just see us start to have a different relationship with the rest of nature and all the other animals. I mean, obviously, we've done a terrible job up to now, and we're all being punished for it or, or feeling the consequences of having an exploitive, abusive relationship with other animals and the rest of nature with a COVID-19 pandemic. But I, you know, it would be worthwhile to really take a look at uh, what this is telling us. And maybe, just maybe, we can start to move towards a more equitable relationship with the other animals. I don't know. I don't have a lot of hope that that's going to happen. All I know is that I want to promote actions that move us in that direction. And that's something everybody can do, whether they have hope or not. You can always make the world better with your actions. So, Matt, that was a fantastic episode. Laurie's amazing, isn't she? She is amazing. And what an incredible career she's had. And no doubt she's going to continue to go on and do some amazing things, the Whale Sanctuary Project. I am so privileged to work with her. Oh, yeah, it was was really cool that you get to work with her in that way. But I have to say, Matt, that sort of surprises me considering, considering your position on euthanasia of killer whales. I mean... I can't believe what you were actually saying in the podcast there. Listen, Harry, you are misrepresenting me, as always. You know I Matt, listen, I'm... I've got the recording here. Hold on a second. Oh, listen. For God's sake. Go on. I think euthanizing killer whales is really important. <laughs> I can't believe it. Just listen again. I think euthanizing killer whales is really important. I mean, that's your voice. Those are your words, right? Do you know what Ingrid Viss is going to do to me? <laughs> He's in New Zealand. I mean, you know, not He's only... Not only... Over mate, here... Murder me. Not only, not only did you do that, you're so celebratory about it that you even put it to a rap. I mean, oh. <laughs> you are so proud of yourself right now, Harry. <laughs> You have you're a CEO of a global party, but that is your that is one of your LinkedIn profile, isn't it? Are you telling me? Absolutely. Are you telling me that you did not say that and that you haven't put your opinion on the euthanasia of killer whales into a rap? Are you telling me that's not you? Because it sounds like you. This is this is this is not only slander. Do you know how long I've been working to try and get on an email list with Naomi Rose? And now shes they're just going to take me off. Well, that's well, that's out the window now, isn't it? I know, exactly. I mean, you, you completely fucked that up by making a rap about killing killer whales. Hey, I mean, what the hell? Hey, mate. However, thinking about it, I could work for SeaWorld. 
<laughs> other parts are available, and I'm not saying anything particularly about SeaWorld. Yeah. I could you think there. the rap's bad. You should see the video that you put together. Oh. <laughs> <I> mean... <laughs> Listen, I was naked for a reason, okay? I was naked for a reason. There was that. never a reason good enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> Anyway, oh. just to reiterate, right. neither Matt or I are in favor of the euthanizing of any cetaceans in captivity, just to reiterate. Although to reiterate. that is that is pretty compelling evidence. I mean, you know, I don't want to say, but anyway, back to Laurie's <laughs> podcast, Matt. If people are interested in finding out about the whale sanctuary, where can they find out about it and Laurie's work? Well, Harry, they can go on the Whale Sanctuary Project website, which is whalesanctuaryproject.org and go on and find on there the work we're doing at the Whale Sanctuary Project, the team, a little bit more about the captive whales, find a little bit more about their background. You can also get in touch with them on Twitter and Facebook. All the links of which can be found in the description of this podcast. Amazing. And really excitingly at the moment, and this is particularly good considering the coronavirus and people are in lockdown looking for things to do, Whale Sanctuary Project has a very short film called Whales Without Walls. You can watch it on Vimeo. But Laurie and Charles Vinnick, who is going to be a guest on this very podcast in two weeks' time, the executive director of the Whale Sanctuary Project, are offering to host a virtual screening of the short film with a Q&A with both of them. So you can basically ask them any question you like about anything whales dolphins the project maybe you listen to this podcast and you were tearing your hair out at the incompetence of harry and i and there was a question that was so obvious you wanted answering and you couldn't put the film on on a huge screen in your flat house wherever and get in touch with them and they will host a q a afterwards how often are you able to do that with two incredibly inspiring individuals harry i tell you almost never unless you have your own never. podcast in which case yeah. every week but in general, do you think, not do you think not we should offer Q and A's, Harry? Sorry, do you think we should offer Q and A's? Uh, no. Nah. <laughs> next week, <No>. Matt. <laughs> Who have we got next week? <laughs> oh God! Um, next week, Harry, we've got Brian Faulkner. Brian, you're going to love this episode, listeners. He's done so much and. Let's just say we talk about Chernobyl, Sierra Leone, genocides. It's like, ah, yeah. Another one it's, of your great friends. It sounds like a barrel of laughs next yeah. week's episode. <laughs> wow, you've really sold that. Brian Faulkner <laughs> is well, one of the <laughs> Brian Brian Faulkner is one of the world leading experts in dog catching in regards to trap new to release sterilization projects animal control he's got more than 30 years experience in doing it he's absolutely amazing and he's worked in some of the most incredible places in the world and the stories that he had to tell us were quite quite incredible yes they they were based in chernobyl and sierra leone but it's not it's not all doom and gloom there were some good stories to be told there as well not a podcast to be missed trust me it's none so inspiring none of them are to be missed none of them are none of them are uh, i can't wait for you all to listen to that one as well it's, it's going to be a really good one it's fantastic and so if people want to listen to the podcast what do they need to do matt well harry they need to first of all go on podbean and look at our website there mm-hmm. or go on to any other podcast site that they use and we will be there 
we will be there. We can be on Spotify. We're on iTunes, Harry. Google Play. Stitcher, something that you and I literally don't, don't know, know still what, anything about. No one knows. No idea what Stitcher is. Um, but that is the website. And if you want to get in touch on social media, we said it before, but just do it. And, and basically just subscribe. But most of all, please, please share with anyone you think might like it. Because first of all, you could be inspired by these incredible journeys that Sam, Mark, Lola and Tim have been on. But Hopefully, guys, if you can share it with other people, we want to get these journeys out there. We want to let as many people as possible know about the incredible projects, the incredible work, and just the dedication and inspirational actions of these individuals. Um, the more people listen, the more people we can get this out. So please, 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 not only subscribe, review, like, and all that good stuff, but try and share it wherever you can. Absolutely. Yeah, we just want people to enjoy listening to it as much as we've enjoyed speaking to these people and share it with as many other people as possible. So until next week, thank you for listening, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you next week. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye.